episode of Polar Times, bringing you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. My name is Alexandra Zuhr and I'm happy to present you a new episode of Polar Times. I have an inspiring conversation with Floriana Miesen about fieldwork in all kinds of aspects. Floriana is currently a field technician at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, but her love for fieldwork started way earlier during her Bachelor of Physical Geography. Her first contact with fieldwork was in Svalbard in the High Arctic and on glaciers in the Andes. She was so excited that she continued to participate in field campaigns and has even made it her profession today. I guess many of us can relate to great feelings and experiences during field work. She's now organizing, planning and carrying out big field campaigns for entire research groups and sections and she shares her experiences with us. We talk about what is involved in planning and carrying out field work with a focus on the Swiss Alps, what difficulties can arise, what the risks are and what the best aspects of field work are, especially in the camp. I myself learned many things which I didn't think about before and I very much appreciate the job of every field technician in enabling smooth field work for scientists. We also talk about the differences between polar and alpine field work and how it is to be in the field as a woman. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Get ready for some field work information. If you liked the episode in Polar Times, then subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. If you would like to get in contact with us, just send us an email at thesearepolartimes at gmail.com or you can tweet apex at polar underscore research on Twitter. Hi, Floriana. Thank you for joining us in Polar Times this week. How are you? Um, hi. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So in the first part of the podcast, we would like to get to know you a bit. We call it the icebreaker. So how did you come to your current uh, job and how did you end up in the polar and the alpine world? So as you know, I'm a field technician and um, that's a job that I didn't really know about when I started studying geography. So I'm uh, originally from Germany where I studied geography in my bachelor's and master's in, in Bonn. And I'm from quite a flat part where there's no, no mountains, no glaciers. I didn't know so much about the polar regions, etc. But then when I started studying, I became really interested in uh, polar and alpine research. And I searched for some opportunities to actually get to these regions because I had never been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... In my bachelor's, I went to the university center in Svalbard, uh, where I took a summer course. And there I got to know a lot of um, PhD students, people who were doing research, but I was also really impressed by the logistics center of the of UNIS. And I met one, one of the staff members who had done her master's in, in geography, actually, and uh, she's now Yeah, working at the at the logistics center, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> um, that's a job that I've never heard of, and that'd be really something I'd like to do. And then later on in my studies, I was lucky to become a student assistant in a research group for geomorphology, where I joined two field campaigns in South America, 
uh, one in Chile and one in Argentina, where we did a lot of field work on rock glaciers in really high mountain terrain. And um, I was able to gain a lot of field experience. And by that time, I was still thinking I'd really like to be in research. Is a PhD really something for me? But I was also thinking what I'm doing right now, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing field work. I'm helping um, scientists do their work. And so after my master's, I decided to exclusively look for a job like this. And I found this one in Lausanne, where I've now been employed for two years, helping with the research projects on a Swiss glacier. Mm, that's, that's a nice way to end up in, uh, in Switzerland, in the Alps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I guess every PhD student or scientist had at some point the feeling, I don't want to do the science anymore. I just want to go to the field and collect samples. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it's, it's basically the fun part of science, I would say. But I, I also know that people really enjoy working in the lab or actually doing the project. <laughs> yeah. But what was the decision for you to not go to do a PhD or to pursue a, an academic thing with a lot of fieldwork? I mean, there are a lot of PhD programs where you have a bunch of fieldwork and lab work and uh, all that stuff in the end. Uh, yes, it's true. I think... At the end of my master's, I realized that I love science and I love research, but in the end, I prefer something practical. So I also, at that point, I got interested in guiding and, and nature communication and um, managing groups. And so this field technician job really combines all these, all these interests and passions to be part of science, but actually yeah not just be at my desk and think which I also do of yeah. course but actually be there from day to day do practical things organize something one day and see the results right away so when I first applied for this job I thought it would be sort of a bridge to learn or to get more experience and maybe yeah maybe have an idea for a PhD later on but uh, now after two years uh, working as a field technician I've, I've realized that that's really what I want to do so for now uh, I work together with a lot of PhD students but I'm not a PhD student myself. So you see them struggling to get their results published and uh, you can prepare the next few campaigns. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so how does a typical day of a field technician look like just for everyone who was maybe never in the field or has no idea what the logistics behind field campaign planning is like? Yes, I think um, it perhaps depends on where you work as a field technician. So I know, for example, people at uh, UNES and Svabart, they may have to work from a day-to-day -day basis because they work for a lot of different projects and There are a lot of different fieldwork campaigns scheduled, so they have to prepare that in very short notice. In my role that I had the last two years, it would maybe be easier to say, what does the normal year of a field technician look like? <laughs> Because we worked in seasons. So we had two big field seasons over the last two summers, uh, and it essentially takes a year of preparation and wow. a year to half a year. <laughs> and yeah so what I did in the beginning was to prepare those three months field campaign by organizing logistics working together with the four PhD students who are doing the, their research on and in front of the glacier to see what equipment they needed 
which sampling needed to be done, at which frequencies, uh, who would work together with whom, how many assistants, uh, as in student assistants, they would need, how to get people there, how to organize food, quantities of food that we needed in, in our base camp, uh, etc. And then once we get to the field where we have a camp with tents and big kitchen tents and equipment tents and power supply with solar panels, and that's, that's quite a different type of work. So yeah, summer is really different from winter. And in the summer in the camp, I take part in the field work. So I help people sample, but I also organize the camp. Um, I make sure that people have their equipment. I remind people uh, of our safety protocols and I, yeah, kind of keep an overview of what needs to be done. Like the head of everyone and everything and keeping everything together. Um, Yes. So because, yeah, that may be that. That's quite a typical thing of uh, of a technician or a logistician or however you might want to call this position. Because I think uh, people who work in similar fields, maybe their their official job name is camp manager or uh, logistics, uh, chief of logistics or something like this. So as the researchers are really focused on their work, they might lose track of what the others are doing or what needs to be prioritized of what the weather is like, who's arriving at camp. So yeah, my job is to to keep an overview and to be structured. <laughs> uh, I guess that's uh, the most difficult part in, in an entire camp. Do you have to be familiar with all the scientific aims and projects to know what kind of um, equipment is needed and what kind of sampling intervals has to be done? You do not only have to know the equipment and the projects, but also which person needs it at which time in the camp during like a three-month season. You said that's really long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, well, our season was really long because we we studied the season, basically. Okay. So <laughs> we studied all the processes in front and underneath the glacier, actually, over the course of the season. And that needed a lot of sampling and a lot of monitoring, so a lot of repetitive work, actually. And we discussed this beforehand to see what was the, the sampling interval that everyone wanted. Perhaps if some instruments had to be shared by several people and how they could arrange among amongst themselves uh, to yeah to share that equipment. And yes, and I I mean I have a I have a background in, in physical geography, so. I'm also aware of the scientific questions and how you should design the sampling procedure so it actually answers your questions. Can you maybe tell a bit about where the the field site was and how the logistics was? Um, I could imagine that you have a lot of instruments in your university, but then you have to kind of prepare the logistics to, I don't know, fly, take cars and just bring it somehow to the glacier and then stay there. And I don't know, have you spent like three months In the camp? No, I didn't spend three months without a break, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the whole camp was there for three months. So yeah, maybe I should tell a bit about the, the background or the, the whole project. So we ran a field camp in the Val de Bagne, um, which is in southern Switzerland, uh, and we were close to 
where we were close and on the Otema Glacier, uh, which is the third largest glacier in Switzerland, which is not very known because there are no, there's no ski area, no, uh, <laughs> no normal hiking trail around. So um, people aren't very aware of it. But it is for Swiss standards quite remote. As I said, there's no, there's no road that leads up to it. And we had to get permissions to use a, an old road uh, from a hydropower company to get as close as we could. And then we'd have to walk to the site uh, on foot. But as you can imagine, for three weeks, uh, sorry, for three months, you need a lot of equipment. You need yes. not only your tents and the food, but you need a lot of field equipment. And so our equipment was flown in by helicopter. And that took, I think, last time we went, uh, it was more than 10 flights of helicopters. Yeah, because of so many people coming and their equipment and their food, but also because we flew a, a hot water ice drill onto the glacier nice. to drill into the glacier. Uh, and yeah, that was all a lot of uh, logistics organization um, that needed to be taken care of. Yeah. What was your other question? Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I think it was like, uh, yeah, how do you bring the instruments from your institute to the campsite and... I guess the logistics part in having the the plan which instrument has to be ready to be transported to the field site and then coordinating the helicopter and the food supply and everything at the same time. It's, uh, I can imagine it's quite challenging. When I went to the field, I was happy that I only had to take care about my stuff, uh, some, my equipment and maybe some of the instruments which I could carry from my institute by hand. But already that was challenging for me in the first place. Do you have the feeling that it gets easier the more experience you have? Or is it always just the same that you always start at zero of a new project that you have to get to know everything and organize everything from scratch? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely gets easier with experience. When I did the first season uh, on this glacier here in Switzerland, I had never been there. So I had to prepare the base camp without ever having been to the the field side and I could just rely on the descriptions from colleagues who had been there before and um, use their experience so that was a bit challenging <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it definitely gets easier there's a lot of routines that you adapt and while you're in the field there's a really steep learning curve of of what needs to be prepared beforehand what can go wrong what extra supplies you need things like that so yeah I think I'm still learning a lot. Yeah, every time you go to the field, you, you realize, okay, this is what makes things easier. This is what you should think of. And then there's often new challenges and not only the logistics of bringing things into the field, but also bring them out of the field. Yeah. So last summer, for example, one of the PhD students was, was sampling um, biofilms and he was, he was taking samples that needed to be frozen directly and then transported out of the camp as soon as possible and that's quite challenging if if the field site is not is not accessible and you have to somehow manage to bring up dry ice and then have the samples taken as fast as possible and then walk out with a really heavy fridge box on your on your backpack frame <laughs> and transport that back to to the lab so that was a new challenge this year which uh, which in the end worked out but over the summer, we had to improve things and improve the routines. Yeah, 
you said that you started or you had your first experience of field work in Svalbard at Yunus. Did it catch you from the beginning that you wanted to do like polar and alpine field work or did you ever consider to change to another research area? I don't know, go to the Sahara and go to dunes? <laughs> or what is special for you about these environments? Yeah, I think I was intrigued by cold regions really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm not the only one if I say that I had never heard of Svalbard before I went there. I think that happens to a lot of students who, who go there and then they end up going there every year. That was the case for me. So I went there on three consecutive years uh, and took some courses. For me, it's something about the harshness of the environment. It's just really different from, from where I'm from. And it's really challenging, although you could also say that about the Sahara, of course. But for me, it's also just scientifically the the objects that I look at so ice snow permafrost that's something that's unfortunately changing really quickly right now but you can really see the processes happening happening so I think it's quite interesting to study because over the course of just a season you can see all the changes and you understand them yeah you understand that they're happening at least and you can actually experience them so That's what got me into the field of, of polar and alpine research. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. Just experiencing how the light and the environment are changing in the Arctic or on mountains is just so different from what you're used to and what you just see in your daily life. <laughs> what is different between fieldwork in polar areas and alpine areas? Is there a specific difference in logistics? I mean, of course, the, the topics are different a bit, even though it's both ice and snow. I think they're both challenging, but they have different challenges. So when I think of polar research, I often think of cruise ships and um, ship-based uh, research, although I know there's a lot of land-based <laughs> uh, polar research as well. Yeah, and then there's also, of course, different mountain regions that have different challenges. So uh, I think I'm in a quite um, comfortable location here in, in the Alps. There's a lot of infrastructure and things aren't really far away. I mean, in, in our case, it was quite special that we didn't have phone network, for example. But usually in the Alps, a lot of research groups stay at alpine huts or even hotels or they just drive there from their institute for a day and they can do their research and uh, get really interesting data whereas in polar environments you are really far away from <laughs> from, from your institute uh, you might i think for logistics it's there it's really important that you really think of everything because you can't just drive back and uh, and get that extra tool or whatever you need yeah. uh, and you have to be really well prepared maybe alpine research depending on what you do of course and how you how you design your your field campaign could be a bit more physically demanding if you need to walk or hike and uh, really rough terrain it's a uh, it really depends on the region so when when i was a student assistant in in the andes where we worked And on a rock glacier at about 4,500 meters above sea level, you have these extra challenges of altitude sickness. You have uh, um, extra challenges of 
you know, ha hazards from rockfall because you're in this un uneven terrain. Uh, whereas in the polar regions, you might work in the tundra where it's really flat, but then you're fighting against mosquitoes, for example. So the challenges are really diverse. <laughs> Did you experience any difficulties in being a woman and a field technician? It can be challenging to be a woman in the field because, especially because of uh, physical aspects. So when you have long, tiring days in the field, um, or if you have specific tasks that need a lot of strength, maybe you don't have the strength. And sometimes you're just, there's a lot of little reminders that people, I think different women take differently so they some might be ashamed that they're not as strong as others might just accept it and was it like a pre-requirement <laughs> of your position that you had to be physically fit i mean i guess partly yes because if you go to the field you have to be able to walk a specific distance i think it was implied in the position that you would have to be fit enough to work in an alpine environment it didn't say You have to run a specific number of kilometers in this time. <laughs> Luckily. Um, But would you say it's no. more common that your your colleagues are more men who work as field technicians? Or do you have the feeling that this field of uh, people is quite diverse? Mm, I would say I know enough female field technicians, luckily. I don't know that many field technicians, to be honest, because <laughs> I think there's a lot more PhD students than field technicians. But uh, as you're probably aware, there's more, there's still a higher amount of male PhD students in the geosciences than, um, than female uh, PhD students. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I experienced that myself that the, the camp, it's uh, a lot of times that there are more men, people in the field than women, and especially older people than younger people sometimes. And I had a feeling that there is sometimes kind of a hierarchy that uh, the experienced men have not the privilege, but they do the physical things. And especially the young female PhD students are maybe set aside. But I'm, I'm also sure if it's just a, a polar and an alpine thing because you have to be physically strong. Yeah. But it's nice to see that you as a woman are doing all of the logistics. Yeah, maybe just a general thing about fieldwork and being a woman. When I organized the camp, I tried to always keep that in mind that I'm the first woman field technician for this project. <laughs> and we, so there's four male PhD students, but we have a lot of student assistants who are yeah, of different genders, so they, I'm not the only woman in camp, uh, just to say that, and I uh, try to incorporate some, some little things into the field plan that could make life easier for everyone. So, for example, uh, raising the famous uh, toilet issue in the field so um, I made sure that we had a proper toilet in the field and that we had rules of only using that so everyone had their uh, right to privacy yeah but there's all there's always challenges in field work related to gender and differences in just in physique so I remember we had these 
these waders to cross the glacier stream. And we always had to see when, when it was safe to, to cross the stream. Typically, that's in the morning when the water level is low. And then in the afternoon, it wouldn't have been possible for some people because the water level was, was too high for them to cross. And I noticed that some of the, the female field assistants, well, student field assistants that we had were too short to cross the river um, in the afternoon because the, the water would enter their, their waders. So they couldn't really join this activity or they had to go another way. So there's always these little challenges that you have to consider and that you should plan ahead for when you do field work. Things I, I never think about when I think about field work, that there are these little tiny details which you have to think about. How would you say are group dynamics in the field? And what did you experience? I guess you also experienced different group dynamics in different uh, teams. I think generally uh, field work for a lot of people is a really great experience. It's such a special setting for people to work together for some time in a remote place. We've seen a lot of friendships emerge from, from team uh, work and in, in field work. And I think that's really great. And normally, what from what I've seen, group dynamics are, are generally good during field work. But of course, there's always some, sometimes when there's frustration, people get tired, then, yeah, people might get grumpy. So they should just go to their tent. And uh, <laughs> and when <laughs> when they're happy again, they come back and uh, we can have a good time. So, um, yeah, I think what's important is that everyone always is aware of what the others are doing and what their needs are. So nobody gets frustrated with, with each other. Of course, people can get frustrated with their field work or with the conditions because the weather is not good. But it's always important to keep in mind that the team should be should work um, and the team should be happy. So at least that condition is good. Yeah, what I did for our camp was to hold a briefing before we went to the camp where everyone would be informed about the logistics, about the safety, about the requirements of equipment, what you should bring, etc. So you're well prepared and nobody is, uh, feels like they, they didn't get well informed beforehand. But then teams can be different. So when I was... In Argentina, for example, we were the same team for a long time. Whereas here in Switzerland, we have a we have a schedule of who comes to camp. So actually, the team can change from one week to the other, and that's quite important to to keep in mind that when new people come to the group, they should be welcomed and they should be introduced to all the routines. So. Yeah, nobody's an outsider, for example. Um, <laughs> and do you have like an exit strategy when you feel that the dynamics are going to be worse because people are just uh, in a bad mood? Yeah, I think when somebody's unhappy about something, it's it's really important to talk about it. But yeah, we didn't really have an exit strategy in the way that we were expecting things go really catastrophic, but um, <laughs> I think we were lucky that that people were generally happy with the situation in the camp. Would you say there's a difference between people knowing each other beforehand and people seeing each other the first time on an expedition or in the camp? Yes, I think there's people who, or let's say like this, so I 
I've done work with people who I known before and some people who I just got to know in the field. And it's it's quite funny sometimes that when you know people beforehand, you see them as a really different person in the field. So you can be really good friends and then you go to the field and things get a bit complicated or it's the other way around and you you realize, oh, they're really good, they're really good team players and uh, this is the person that I want to work with. And then, of course, you get to know new people in the field and they you just know them in this specific setting and it's, it doesn't matter who they are in, in real life, so to say. Um, so that's quite cool. But I think normally people are quite cooperative and it doesn't matter if if two team members are really good friends. Um, I think in, in that specific setting, the situation is just so unusual and so special that people realize that it's good that everyone works together. Yeah, everyone knows how important it is to get your data and I also had the impression that everyone is also really happy to help out if someone is needed or if some projects are going wrong, then everyone is just running around and asking if uh, my spare part could be helpful for you. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, That's what I also experienced, that the people are usually really nice and helpful in the, in the field because everyone is just so happy to be in the field and excited about new data. <laughs> yes, exactly. And what I... One thing that I really like is working with bachelor or master students because they, so for some of them, it's the first time they go into the field. They've ever seen the things that they study, which was the same for me when I went to my first field trip and then when I went to Svalbard. And they're just so eager to learn everything and so helpful and they just want to help with everything. And that's really cool. And of course, really, really good because we need the help. But yeah, it's, it's really cool to see somebody getting really passionate about the things they see and things they touch and measure and smell. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's so important for students to go out and see what the books tell you just to see and experience it yourself. Are you as a field technician also responsible for the safety of all the participants? Yes, I'm, at least I'm responsible for preparing the safety measurements and the risk assessment. I guess you're I'm not, not uh, waiting that polar bears are coming around in the ads, but what kind of challenges could you have or what do you have to plan for? Yes, luckily I don't have to be on a polar bear watch and show people how to use a rifle because the, I really don't like doing that. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, I think I mentioned this before, in alpine environments, you have all types of different hazards, as also in polar environments, but in the Alps, uh, or sorry, in, in mountain regions, you have all these slope processes that are really interesting to study, but they're also, they can also be um, hazardous. So there's a rockfall and debris flows, etc., that can be hazardous, but also just working in the field in general entails a lot of potential risk. So we're working in a glacier stream that's really wild and that's I think quite easy to drown in. <laughs> we work on the uh, on the glacier um, and of course working on a glacier also always yeah can be dangerous um, but doesn't have to be dangerous if you're taking the, the right measurements to reduce the risk. So in my role I had to prepare a risk assessment and present it to 
the institute and then also brief the participants on this. So in the risk assessment, you have to identify all the potential things that could go wrong. So basically everything that could be dangerous. Uh, and then you have to estimate how likely that is to happen. And from that, you get a risk on a, on a scale from one to nine. And then you have to list measures to reduce this risk um, to make the field uh, camp more, more safe. And that's, that's quite challenging because you really have to think of, you really have to brainstorm and think of everything that could go wrong. And that can be from cutting your finger while just cutting an apple in the, in the yeah. kitchen <laughs> to actually somebody falling off an ice cliff or drowning in the, in the river or lightning hitting the camp, things like that. So it's sometimes a bit of a weird job because you have to be really pessimistic about everything, but then yeah. in the end you can be optimistic and, and say, okay, we can take all these measures to, to improve the safety of the camp. And then in the end I had to, yeah, I, I did a safety briefing for everyone where I recommended, well, I introduced rules on specific things for example, how to cross the river safely, and then just some general recommendations on how to be safe in the field. And what was the worst thing which, which happened, or what level of risk do you usually then also encounter in the field? Luckily, we were quite safe in, in our field side, so no major things happened. Uh, we didn't have any major injuries. Uh, we never had to call a helicopter for rescue, but... One, maybe the, the riskiest uh, situation that I had last year was when there were a lot of um, really heavy, when there was a lot of really heavy rainfall in Central Europe. It was the time when there was also a lot of floods in Germany and Belgium. And we had the worst forecast I'd ever seen for the camp with really strong winds, really heavy rainfall, thunderstorms for more than 24 hours. <laughs> so... We decided to to abandon the camp, to evacuate the camp and move everyone to an alpine hut that's about a one hour hike away from a field site. And we stayed there for two nights while the storm was taking place or was <laughs> was happening around around the mountains. And then when we came back to the, the field camp, some things had been damaged. So it was good that we hadn't been there and we had been hit by a flying object and um, any slow processes that can be really in, intense during rainfall. But that was, of course, also when I had to take this decision that we would evacuate the camp, that was not so easy. You have to choose the right point of time when you, when you do take that decision and then you have to communicate that to everyone and they might not be so happy because they can't continue taking their samples. So, yeah, communication is key there to um, make sure everyone understands why you have to take a, a certain measure. It also sounds like a lot of responsibility to be the person who has to make the call to stay or go. Yes, exactly. And I think since, to me, that hasn't happened so many times where I actually had to take decisions, luckily, because everything went well, <laughs> um, there's... There's still always a learning curve. Um, yeah, how to deal with these situations. Yeah. Fingers crossed that I don't have to, uh, that we don't get into these situations uh, too many yes. times. 
maybe one of my last questions, but it's so obvious. Did COVID influence your field site as well or the, the field campaign and the preparation, the logistics? And uh, I mean, you, you said that you were, that the field camp was running for three months. So obviously you were able to go there um, compared to a lot of other expeditions which had been cancelled. Yeah, definitely. COVID was challenging, but I think we were quite lucky that we had our field site in the same country, just just about a three-hour drive from our institute. So we didn't have to deal with crossing borders, quarantining before yeah. <laughs> going into another country. So that was quite good. And in the first season in 2020, the cases in Switzerland were quite low while we had the field campaign. So that was no problem. And in the second year, cases were a bit higher, but we had a plan of everybody taking a test before coming to camp. And then in the risk assessment, I also had to write um, what to do in case somebody actually feels sick in the camp. So in the worst case, we would have gone into isolation with the entire camp and take measures to take care of this person and not spread the virus <laughs> even further. But um, yeah, I think we were quite lucky in that respect that we didn't have to deal with crossing borders. Um, yeah, I guess it's one of the biggest challenges in the uh field expeditions right now if you really have to go to other countries take planes and quarantine and uh, have different regulations everywhere yes and um since during the entire field season we were never inside that probably also helped with with kind of estimating the risk from COVID because we were we were all in our own personal tents for sleeping and yeah we were just outside for three months <laughs> You at least don't have to care about uh, how many people are allowed in one building. Yes. And stuff like this. <laughs> so as the last part of the podcast, uh, we always give our guests a chance to make a polar plug, to just tell anything you want to the public. Do you have anything you want to talk about? Um, I think I just want to emphasize and encourage people who are hesitating whether they should do a PhD, but who are really passionate about research at the same time to try and see what other ways there are to get involved in science and yeah, to find some, some position that fits them. So yeah, I think I'm quite happy that I found found this type of work where I can work with science and be part of science, but uh, actually, yeah, work with people and not with data. <laughs> yeah, and I just want to encourage people to to think outside of the box and not think only in the, in the classic uh, academic uh, career stages. There are a lot of other opportunities to, to take. I totally agree. <laughs> Thanks a lot for joining me on Polar Times. Uh, I had a, a really nice insights into fieldwork and all the logistics related to it. So yeah, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>
views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other hosts.